Welcome to Respond. Here's your host, Stuart Gray. Respond comes out of my experience as a Christian. Sometimes I've had opportunities to talk about the reasons why Christianity makes sense to me. Other times, I've not had these opportunities, but I wish I had. My aim for this podcast is maybe to open up issues that you might have if you're unconvinced about Christianity so far. And perhaps it'll also give the already convinced some help talking about Christianity with interested friends. Hey, how are you? So this week, we're going to grapple with one of the oldest questions that has faced people. If there's a God, why do people suffer? The question usually goes like this. If God is this all-powerful and all-loving being, why would he allow his creatures just to experience evil and suffering? If he's all-powerful, surely he can stop anything that he wants to, right? Maybe he's not powerful enough to stop people suffering, which means he's not really much of a god. But if God was all-loving, surely he would really want to stop suffering, if he loves us. But we know there's suffering in the world, so maybe God doesn't care as much about people as Christians say he does. These are thorny sounding questions. So why don't we start with a simpler one? What is evil? The books and movies we've probably grown up with have given us a particular idea about what evil is. We know evil when the bad guy appears, the monster, the character that's just so irredeemable that they have to be defeated at the end of the story. But is that really what evil is? You know, Christian thinkers, starting with St. Augustine, uh, have usually defined evil really simply, and they've said this, evil is the absence of good. Evil is just where good isn't. So this means that evil's not a thing. It's not a nasty-looking blob that you catch out of the corner of your eye that's following you around and making you feel bad. You can't go to the shop and buy two litres of evil. Evil isn't a thing. Rather, it's a corruption of what is good in the world. And if you think about it, that might make evil a lot more common than we think. Alright, so if that's true, then let's go back to the first question. Why does evil happen? Why do bad, evil things happen to good people like us? Well, that's an interesting question because it kind of assumes that people are naturally good. But is that right? What if it's not that simple? I remember a couple of years ago, my wife and I visited the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. It was a unique opportunity to explore their really sobering, disturbing historical evidence of the Nazis' final solution and their extermination of 6 million Jews, 1.8 million Polish civilians, 250,000 disabled people, and just the list of persecuted groups goes on. 
The word genocide seems very appropriate for what the Nazis were doing in the 20th century. As part of our visit to the museum, we we listened to a first-hand account of one of the Jewish survivors of World War II. And even though he's, he's pretty frail now, his words were powerful. They punched through. I mean, I would say that our visit to the museum that day was really interesting. But here's how I felt as we were walking around. I was miserable. <laughs> I was upset and I was angry. Did I feel that way because of some moral outrage at what happened to these poor people? Well, yes, of course. I did feel that. But I think I was really disturbed by something that was deeper than that. I wasn't just thinking about what what the victims were experiencing and how awful that was. I was also thinking about the perpetrators. I realised that the people committing these unspeakable atrocities, the Nazi soldiers, the workers in the death camps, they were just people. They were normal individuals like you and me. You know, one particular incident that's recorded in that museum really hit me, and it happened in one of the death camps. Having having ushered a group of people into a gas chamber, as one of the particular workers in that death camp began to close the door behind those people, words were exchanged. The distraught Jewish mother, who was pressed up against the closing door, pleaded with that worker to let her little child live. His reply, I'm sorry, I'm just doing my job. He clanged the door shut and the Zyklon B gas was released, exterminating that mother, her child and everyone else in the room. You know, it seems to me those words, I'm just doing my job, sum up the problem of evil for mankind. Clay Jones is an associate professor of of theology at, at Biola University and he studied the problem of suffering and evil extensively. He spent time thinking about the topic of genocide. Cheery topic, right? His discoveries are stark. And in all the recorded genocides in human history, basically he says it's the normal, everyday people who do the crime. Uh, You know, it's funny. I started studying funny peculiar more than funny laughable. (laughs) But it's funny, but uh, I started studying genocide not... I didn't know it was going to become a, a big point for me, but I started studying genocide mostly because I didn't want to be disqualified from somebody looking at me and saying, you didn't, you haven't taken, you're getting God out of the problem of evil by not taking evil seriously. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, I don't want anybody to be able to disqualify me. on going, you didn't look at how bad this really is. So I started studying genocide. And then for some reason, I kept going and uh, and as I kept studying genocide, I think I was reading Iris Chang's book, The Rape of Nanking, uh, which is about Japan's invasion of Nanking, China in 1937. And in that book, uh, Iris Chang talks about that the Japanese uh, tortured, raped or tortured or murdered 300,000 people. Uh, and Iris Chang writes that the soldiers went beyond rape to, uh, to uh, slice off women's breasts, to nail them alive to walls, 
that fathers were forced to rape their daughters and sons, their mothers, as other family members watched. And as I kept reading genocide books, I began to realize this is just simply something that humans do. This is what humans do. They do genocide very easy. And and, uh, one more major point about that is every genocide researcher I've ever read, and I've read a lot of them, and I have said this to so uh, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people now probably heard me say this. I've said every genocide researcher I've ever read to a person, there are no exceptions, and every genocide victim I've ever read, and I've read a lot of the victim's own words, every single one of them agree, without exception, that it's, that it's the average member of a population that commits genocide, every one of them. Ellie Wiesel absolutely does. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago, all of them do. Let's think about this for a minute. If the ordinary, everyday person commits genocide, then if you or I were at the wrong place, at the wrong time, isn't it possible that the perpetrator could be us? We certainly don't like to hear those words, but the record of history suggests it's true. Now, if that's the case, surely there's something wrong with people. Let's bring it right up to date. Think about the abortion rates today. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying the abortions like the Jewish Holocaust. It's very different, but it is similar in the sense that it involves the mass death of humanity. In this case, the decision to kill pre-born human beings. Now, in the UK, where I live, in the year 2018, there were there were. 205,295 recorded abortions carried out. Of that number, only 3,269 were due to a risk of that particular child being born severely handicapped. Now that's only 1.6%. So what does that mean? Well, it means that in the UK in 2018, 98.4% of the abortions involved pre-born children who would have lived normal or close to normal lives. That is, if they hadn't been killed in the womb. My point here is not to cast judgment on the people who perform abortions, or people that choose to have them. My point is this. Killing people, even pre-born people, is something done by normal, everyday people like us. It's almost mundane, an everyday occurrence. Now, you might take me to task on this saying, I don't kill anyone, Stuart. That is great to hear. Either do I, but we collectively allow abortion of the healthy 98% to carry on, don't we? Here's another question. Haven't we ever hated someone in our hearts? Or fantasised about having an affair with a co-worker? Now, we didn't do it, but why didn't we do it? Was it because we were a good person? Or was it because we just didn't want our reputation to get messed up? We didn't want to have to deal with the consequences of our own bad behaviour. We didn't want our immoral acts to be found out. So we decided not to do them. Could it be that actually there aren't any good people, just self-interested ones? Here's Dr. Jones again. But there's something wrong. And then when it comes to the way we... We see, I mean, we don't, we see people commit adultery in their hearts and we go, I mean, they think because they don't actually do it, then we go, well, see, he's a good person. No, the reason they're not doing it is out of self-interest. I don't want her to get pregnant or, you know, whatever. That's why they're not doing it. 
Uh, and uh, similarly, if you hate somebody, why don't you kill them? Well, it's not because you care for the person, because we've already established that you hate their guts. So why don't you kill them? Uh, well, it's self-interest, right? I've seen those guys in the prison population, and I don't want to be in there with them. I mean, self-preservation. <laughs> but see, when you when you do it, uh, or when you when you actually commit adultery, or when you actually kill somebody, is when you when you think you found a workaround to get rid of all the, the consequences. I think I can get do this without getting caught. But see, we have a society full of adulterous murderers, and, and we're going, well, they're, because they're not doing it, they're actually good people. It has nothing to do, zero to do with human goodness. And uh, when you tie that again then into genocide, people are not good. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, I think there are good reasons to conclude that people aren't as good as we might think they are. And you know, think about the movies that you watch. Do we have a problem with the bad people suffering? Isn't it the bad guy that dies at the end of the movie and we kind of think that's okay? If it's true that there aren't any good people, then where does that leave us? That sounds pretty depressing. But hang on a minute. This problem has got a lot to do with Christianity. Why? Well, I think Christianity is uniquely positioned not just to explain the reason for our problem, but also the cure to it. You know, in the opening chapters of the Bible, we read about the first two human beings that existed, Adam and Eve. Check out Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Now, many people today might roll their eyes at this, but isn't it interesting that geneticists say that the information within the sequenced human genome points to the first human beings appearing between 50,000 and 60,000 years ago. And they call these ancestors mitochondrial Adam and Eve. This may reference a, a single couple or a small group of, of early human couples. These first humans were believed to have arisen in a region of North Africa, which could very well fit with the description given in the pages of Genesis if you assume the ocean levels were lower 50,000 years ago, which seems pretty reasonable. Here's the point of the Genesis account I want to get to. Humans were created with a whole garden of Eden to enjoy, we're told. And God said to them, basically do whatever you want. Explore, categorise the animals, understand the environment, enjoy yourselves. Just don't go near one particular tree which is off limits to you. Now Genesis describes this tree as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there are many different opinions about what this tree represents in the story and how we need to interpret it. But here's something that everyone agrees on. The first human beings had free will. They were told where the limits were and they were trusted not to go outside the bounds. But it was left up to them to decide either way you probably know what happens in the story. Satan slithers up to Eve, suggests to her that God's cramping their style and they really need to be free of God altogether. So they eat the fruit of the tree, they disobey God, and in the process, decide to get rid of God and basically be God themselves. Not surprisingly, this is a bit of a problem when it comes to their relationship with the real God that made them. But again, notice that Judaism and Christianity that came later are both built around the expectation that human beings choose their path in life. We have free will. I'm going to call belief in free will libertarianism. And what this means is 
I'm completely free to do other than I do. I could change my mind. Now, not everyone agrees that free will exists. They take a perspective that says we don't have free will. And there are two versions of this. The first one's called hard determinism. Now, this says that the story of our lives is already written. We don't make any free choices. We don't realise it, but we're just following a script. It's all predetermined. The other version of determinism is called compatibilism. Now, this version says that even though we aren't actually free, we are able to act according to our desires and our values. So we do what we want to do. It's just that actually our wants and desires are determined by something or someone outside of us. So we aren't actually free in the libertarian sense. But you know, there are big problems with both of these forms of determinism. Here's Dr. Jones again. Free will is the ability to do other than you do, that you can choose to do otherwise. And uh, this is where uh, I'm glad to say I'm on the side of William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland and a host of others. I'm a libertarian. I do not think that a determinist, uh, one who believes that your every thought and deed is determined so that you could never do other than you do, I do not believe that's biblical. I don't think it's logical. Uh, I've debated several uh, people on this topic, including Robert Moray, R.C. Spool Jr., and uh, Bruce Ware and I of Southern Baptist University had a long talk about it. And I just point them to 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that says, no temptation has been overtaken you, such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted beyond your ability to resist, but with a temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And the question is, is then, is when someone as a Christian sins, could they have not sinned? The determinist, and I've had them tell me this, will say, no, I, I, I could not have, when I chose to lust, let's say, I couldn't have, on that occasion have not lusted because God has so arranged the affairs of the universe that I had no choice. Well, wow, uh, you know, anyway, I think that's unbiblical. And, and so free will is the ability to do other than you do. A lot of scripture just doesn't make sense unless you understand that. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, I, for instance, I mean, well, one, if do you really want to be around beings that have no choice to but to love you? They can't not love you because God has so programmed that into them. Mm -hmm. But but you know, it's interesting. The value of free will. I found an unlikely ally in science fiction. Uh, and I go through, I discuss this at length in my book, but there's an unlikely ally in science fiction because science fiction constantly is about uh, free will. Uh, and, and you have various kinds of free, free will arguments made in science fiction. But one of the most common is uh, where man creates computer, computer gets free will, uh, computer then decides to destroy man, and then man spends the rest of the movie trying to destroy computer. Mm -hmm. And we see that in the Matrix movies, we see that in the Terminator movies, we see that in AI, uh, was that the name of it? With Oh, iRobot with Will Smith. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I could go on and on and on. And it sounds, that sounds when people, if they stop to think about it, peculiarly similar to God creates man, gives man free will, man rebels against God. In fact, God even kills God. Uh, but God, he's smart, uh, much smarter than we are. He actually uses the death of his son to bring those who use their free will under the 
power of the Holy Spirit, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, who decide to bring themselves into relationship with him through trusting uh, and having faith in Jesus. I think Dr. Jones makes an excellent point here about how important human freedom is to us, and also how important it is to science fiction stories. Um, You know, sci-fi is one of my, it's possibly my favorite genre, right? I love science fiction movies and books. I love losing myself in these other worlds and fantastical events. As he says, often the threat in the story is against humanity and usually it's freedom. Think of the movie Terminator 2. Now, I just bought this again on 4K Blu-ray recently. So, I'm a fan. But if you think about, if you've seen this movie, it's the story's predicated on the idea, right? that machines from the future decide to dominate people's freedom and ultimately get rid of them. Humanity was clever enough to create machines that exhibit free will. And the machines decide to use their will to exterminate humanity. Is that really so different from the Bible story of God creating Adam and Eve, who then freely decide to do away with him to become God themselves? My other big favourite movie is the 1982 sci-fi future noir masterpiece that is Blade Runner. Do I have this on 4K as well? Of course I do. Yeah, I've, I've visited Los Angeles over the past few years and I've been able to go to 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 a number of the filming locations that were used in this movie. Harrison Ford plays Rick Deckard, whose job it is to hunt down and get rid of artificial humans, or replicants. Now, these replicants have freely decided to go rogue in an attempt to live longer, because they get built and they only live for four years. And they decide four years isn't long enough, they want to live longer, and so they escape. Now, this movie is a bit of a twist on the standard free will theme. The replicants are freely disobeying humanity, but they aren't really the threat, because in the story, it's the human character, Deckard, that is tasked with extinguishing the replicants, and so he's the threat. So the, the, revol- so the roles are kind of reversing here. Our hero character becomes the merciless hunter. But I think what I love about Blade Runner is also that the theme of free will is intertwined with another important theme. All life is valuable. Roy Batty is the leader of the replicants, and he's played by the late Rutger Hauer. And at the movie's climax, Deckard has stopped being the replicant hunter, and he's become the prey. And he's pursued by Batty, who basically has watched all of his replicant friends killed off by Deckard, or retired. And we expect Batty to... to do his best to extract revenge, to try and kill Deckard. But actually, something very different happens. During his pursuit, Batty suddenly realises how precious life really is. His life and Deckard's life. And so he decides to spare the life of that filthy, grovelling, bitter Deckard, even though they are enemies. You see, in Blade Runner, it's the machine that spares the life of the grovelling human, because it comes to understand just how important life really is. And as Batty dies, 
he lets loose a white dove, probably signifying peace and possibly even pointing to something more about the possibility that could replicants, could even they have a soul? Let's pause for a moment. You know, we began this podcast asking why bad things happen to good people. And we noticed that humans regularly act in pretty evil ways towards other humans. We have a problem. And part of our problem is I think we easily forget just how valuable life is, particularly human life. You know, Christianity is uniquely positioned here to explain why evil's real and why it's happened. We are broken as a result of the fall of man, yet we're free to choose how we behave. We can make a choice whether to hurt or heal another human being on this planet today. Jesus once said this, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You know, I wonder whether this this message that, that Jesus gave is so needed in our world today. It's, it's like he's saying, look at all the hatred between people. It's up to each of us to make a decision to let the hatred stop. Stop with us and instead trade blessings for curses. Love those who clearly hate you in spite of what they do and say to you. But how do we do that? Well, it seems to me that the only way we can do it is with divine help. And it's just as well that Jesus himself offers to be with us and to resource everyone who decides to allow their lives to align with him. He loves you and his resources are available to you and me today. With him, we can let the hate stop with us. We just need to ask him for the strength and then we need to walk forward in forgiveness. Reflection over. Let's end the podcast. This week, I've asked why God allows evil. But looking into these things, it has kind of led us to look at the human condition. We we get the value of human life and we will fight tooth and nail to keep our freedom. Yet at the same time, we can't help but destroy life. and and remove freedom. So we've got a problem. Maybe the real question is not, why does God allow suffering? If humans are often the cause of so much evil in the world, maybe the real question is, why does God allow humans? Yet Christianity teaches that God loves human beings. There is hope for humanity in the future because God says there is hope. Now, you might not be convinced. You might still be at the place of saying, but if God exists and he's so powerful, why doesn't he just stop the evil? Can't he just make the world better himself? We're going to think some more about these questions next week. See you then.